This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. This is Max Easton talking to Samuel of the Right Way Podcast about the Magpie Wing. Yeah, Max, thanks so much for that introduction to today's episode. Uh, hello, everyone there listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, and as I, your host, Samuel Elliott, person whom you just heard introducing this episode is none other than today's guest, who is Max Easton. Max Easton is talking to me about his debut novel, The Magpie Wing. Max is a man of uh, many hats. Uh, he is, a, as by his own words, we talk later in the discussion, uh, a former scientist, former rugby league player, a large portion of which is informed, I would dare say, the magpie wing that we discussed, as well as a current and contemporary, and probably for the rest of his life, I would imagine, writer uh, of both creative nonfiction and has appeared in a myriad of different sort of prestigious publications within Sydney and Australia, as well as now a debut novelist with me discussing the magpie wing. Uh, the Magpie Wing follows three different uh, young people uh, from Liverpool, hailing from the Liverpool area, Helen, Walt and Duncan. Helen, Walt are uh, brother and sister. Um, I don't want to reveal too much, but basically it's about them kind of starting off quite young and kind of uh, following them through for a slender, relatively slender novel of a couple hundred to three hundred pages. It uh, kind of tracks a lot of or chronicles a lot of their lives there as they sort of navigate through it. Uh, encountering the punk scene, Sydney's burgeoning sort of underground punk scene, underground music scene, as well as rugby, obviously the uh, perennial sort of uh, lifelong passion that they have there for rugby league. I mean, who doesn't? Max as well is, I believe, a uh, West Tigers supporter as I am as well. So hopefully get to see him at a home game in the near future uh, at Leichhardt Oval, which for those not in the know is the best sporting arena in the world, at least in my humble opinion, but what do I know? Uh, anyway, yes, I digress. Please all give a di- big digital round of applause to Max Easton discussing with me his debut novel, The Magpie Wing. Max Easton, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going on this beautiful lockdown day, man? Yeah, good. Just in the house. <laughs> How oh, yeah. are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, um, it's, it's, I'd like to tell you that the weather's nice. It's not. It's, it's constantly flaring up. It's raining. Is it raining where you are? Yeah, yeah, mm. miserable weather, but miserable weather, mate. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna subvert it by talking, uh, having a cheerful conversation. So let's uh, kick off with an oldie but a goodie. Where did the idea gestate or form for? Where did that come from originally? How did you how did you go about then getting that idea? Um, right, yeah, I wish I I wish I had a really good answer for you, <laughs> but um. I think it kind of like fell out of a box in a way. Like it, it started, I started writing some short stories when I was, um, you know, kind of like a freelance music journalist um, and would occasionally finish one and submit it to a journal or something and didn't have much luck with them. But um, yeah, in time, I like just had enough sitting on a hard drive that I printed them out into a zine and, and that sort of stuff and sent it into Germondo and started turning it into a, book after talking to them but um yeah i suppose the idea just started in kind of like dumping things out of my brain onto the page mm. and then starting to find little arcs and threads and i didn't realize they were connected until i'd put them in the zine as well so things like the characterization and um you know the presence of rugby league or the presence of like underground music um or you know just various conflicts i suppose just kind of started linking 
together in like little arcs and threads. It's interesting, man. So with like with the characters, obviously. So we've got the characters there. Were they were they always what would ultimately sort of aggregate into the Magpie Win, or was it something that like they they kind of started to take control after you sort of uh, assembled them together, and then because the the thing that's probably the the strongest I found with the Magpie Wings was that that there was this familial strength that sort of obviously prevails throughout the years that we're with with the characters what did that kind of change over the course of you editing it or was there sort of like these recurring characters throughout what was obviously showing up in the zines and stuff like that yeah um i think i think they were always there as is in Mm. in some form like as it was coming together um definitely you know the, the helen character has been around in um stuff I've been writing since I was a teenager, I think, mm. um, you know, in very ham-fisted stories or whatever. And, you know, the Walt slash Duncan dichotomy was probably more new and, and became a bit more, I think at some point they might have been the same character, but the idea of them kind of templating each other and being their opposite, um, their differences kind of dovetailing, but having scenes, I think, was a real, like, defining point where it's just like, oh, these two are really important as almost like half formed (laughs) antitheses of each other and Helen's Mm. really important as this kind of like orbiting figure but um yeah again and again they like they didn't really become very defined until the book was you know second draft phase I'd say okay I was gonna I was trying to think of a better way to describe like analogy or expression rather than yin and yang but like they kind of are and I couldn't come up with something better so I don't know what that says about me but Tell me a little bit about, because the way in which we're introduced to them is a really, really good uh, kind of uh, showing, not telling sort of description of them. And there's sort of almost borderline symbiotic sort of way. So it's like a playing style. So I think that where Duncan is said to be like the on-field protector and then sort of uh, meshes or seamlessly with Walter and then they kind of get used to playing with each other like that. Talk a little bit about their different playing styles and how that might sort of mirror their, uh, their own sort of off-field personalities there as well. Yeah, so that, so Walt's kind of this young halfback who's kind of thrown in <clears throat> to the game um, because his dad is becoming friends with Duncan's dad and Duncan's more of a um, sort of sturdy uh, second rower, <clears throat> a rugby league player, like a forward, and um, kind of to placate Walt's mum, the coach gives Duncan and George, uh, sorry, Duncan and Walt this instruction to kind of hang out next to each other and Duncan will protect Walt and, you know, you'll learn underneath him sort of thing. And so they're always on the field and, you know, they grow the friendship as a result, but their playing style then being set up of like, oh, you're going to protect me on the field and I'll be the creative player. And the other guy being like, yeah, I just have to be there for him. I just have to hit his holes. Uh, That's very common, like playing football or playing any sport. I mean, that's true of, those sorts of relationships pretty common in most sports, I imagine. But mm. um, that then spiraling out into the way they either, uh, actually, I don't think they really appreciate each other that much outside of the football field, but the way they then form these little resentments of like, um, oh, Duncan made the rep squad with me and did he really just ran off my, sh- my good passing? <laughs> like, you know, does he deserve to be there? Does, you know, and then that sort of defines their differences in upbringing and class and, the way they react, respond to the world as they get older. 
How much do you reckon, Max? Because you've, you've played a, a bit of league in your life. How much do you think that like your own sort of persona or personality sort of defines your playing style as well? Do you find that have you found whether empirically be within your own sort of experience or within working with others that it sort of uh, kind of translates or is mirrored by the way in which someone's kind of personality is off field or not particularly? Because I, I felt that it kind of like did sort of similarly represent both um, Duncan and Walt's personalities off field. But I wanted what you sort of thought, particularly because you've played. I think um, in the book, at least, it's mm. it's you know definitely more exaggerated than it probably is in real life. Mm. Um, you know, I think I've kind of like hammered the symbolism there a bit too much at times in the book. But yeah, I think that's a part of the playing relationship, and mm. um, you know, it is. You know, like, um, you know, I've gone to great lengths, I think, to sort of connect uh, rugby league with punk music and sport and art in the book, but. It's like, you know, your personality is an expression, is expressed via um, whether that's music or mm. it's definitely expressed on the football field in some ways. And, you know, I changed very much as a player growing up um, from kind of like I was quite talentless when I was young. Um, so it was more of the Duncan style of just do everything right, prepare well and be the fittest player in the team if you can and um, before like developing a skill set and that sort of stuff. And then... Yeah, so I think it's there, but, you know, exaggerated a lot, I think. Yes, man, I don't think it was, like, overly done. Like, it wasn't something that drew attention to itself. So, like, I don't think you're a bit, a bit harsh there on yourself. It certainly didn't shine through as in something that was being contrived. I just thought it nicely sort of mimicked both their, their on-field and off-field sort of personalities. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned about how Helen's always been around within, like, some sort of different variation throughout some of the, the stuff that you've written over the years. I wonder then, because obviously she was a, she was a bit of a gun player and then was sort of a kind of of the time sort of uh, shunned from the community. I want you to talk a little bit about that as well and how that she might have exemplified that sort of uh, of era sort of climate and how she couldn't really progress despite having undeniable natural prowess and ability on the game. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I found that really in, interesting to write in because that was mm. sort of a new, I uh, might've been a second draft thing um, of her playing rugby league until um, and I'm sure it's still the case, but like, um, you know, it's open gender until um, they this arbitrary 13 year old deadline where it just becomes a boys sport. And if you can find a women's league somewhere, um, at least when I was playing, like the 12-year-old girls that we'd play with, it might be one or two in each competition. Mm. Um, they would then have to play against adults at 13. So they would sort of disappear for five years and if they came back into playing women's rugby league. Um, but I thought that was sort of interesting for Helen and, and the story more so that like uh, women's rugby league is becoming quite popular and as mm. a professional competition um and lots of amateur competitions underneath it now so just having that sort of um having that around is like this is the night this is the 90s now she can't play at 13 and um you know the way that she develops in time that's true it has it has come so far would fortunately because i was gonna like you know you wonder the sort of progression of some sort of societal values and attitudes and what sort of shifts and changes, particularly when it comes to women's sports. And it is one of the, I'd say, premier in terms of uh, becoming a much more 
popular and accessible sport to, to, to women players before when obviously what you've sort of exemplified there when the magpie wing, how you can't really, uh, if you are a girl and yeah, the arbitrary cut off from there on after you kind of <laughs> get, get tackled by fully grown, fully grown uh, female players or kind of go off for a while and then maybe emerge or not sort of come back. I want to know a little bit about the Liverpool Catholic club, uh, and if there, if this was sort of some of your own experiences were informed, because there was, you know, there was, it wasn't a huge component of what the, the overall entire novel was, but there were still a lot of elements that I thought were kind of important, and which is still sort of, um, unfortunately, maybe pervasive in current society, which is sort of racism, classism, the all-in brawl with Ingleburn as well. I thought was kind of like something that wasn't, uh, I'd like to say, obsolete, but it's kind of not. I want to know, no, Max, is that some of your own sort of experiences that sort of colour out and informed what would kind of show up in the Magpie Wing, or is that something that you kind of just want to explore? Yeah, you know, in a way, um, again, it's like it's, there's no all-in brawl within a team that I ever played in, but like I That's grew good. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's That's definitely good. a good thing. But there's definitely tensions, yeah. um, racial tensions, class tensions, and but also like... Um, you know, a lot of getting along between race and class lines as well through different mm. years and different clubs and different teams. But, um, yeah, the Liverpool Catholic Club was sort of my junior team for most of my years. And it was interesting as, like, having this Catholic connection because my family are all atheists except, like, the Italian side, which are, like, historical Roman Catholics. But, um, yeah, I thought it was just, like, an interesting place to set um, tensions and this like this idea of a team that's kind of seated by Walt and Duncan having these differences but are told you know you're the same like you put on the same jumper and you, you go out and forget all your prejudices and now throw in 17 other people um, from around Liverpool um, and now drop all your prejudices and get along and you're all the same and um, it's obviously not the case it's good to get along, but you have to acknowledge the prejudices that exist or all the differences between you and um, the football field's an interesting... And a football team or a team-based environment is always a very interesting way to see that play out, I'd say. Cultural melting pot. I don't know if there's, there's probably uh, a better description than isn't that. Isn't that such a... Yeah, such a game <laughs> term for... Um, oh, the Western Sydney cultural melting pot. <laughs> <laughs> Look... I kind of want to know, I mean, like, that, like that, that, what you're talking about there is sort of going to lead us down towards something that I want to kind of spend a lot more time on. So I'll come back to that in a sec with this notions of sort of community and solidarity. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about, so obviously, um, with Walton and Duncan, they're also exemplifying the different households in which one goes to the other and they notice these sort of sharp contrasts as well. And I thought that that was kind of a good way to kind of give this broad-reaching sort of uh, identifiable sense of households of the different. Can you talk a little bit about that, Max, in terms of the different households of the two and, and the other sort of reacting to the other's house when they present? Yeah, and um, I guess that's sort of the birth of a... Um, class consciousness mm. for Walt and whatever the opposite of class consciousness is for Duncan. <laughs> um, because there is this whole element for them of like uh, some kind of external unity discourse. Like you are, um, you know, you're both going to play for this team and you're going to become Western Suburbs representative players. And, um, you know, you're two sides of a coin um, on this gathered you know, journey or whatever, whether that's a season or or whatever um, sort of narrative you're given externally. But, yeah, then 
you know, Walt experiences these sorts of like, I'm going to Duncan's house and it's boring because I have to sit at a table and be well-mannered and I have to take my shoes off at the door. And um, then the inverse of like, Duncan be like, wow, this place is disgusting. Um, Looking down his nose at Walt's Mm -hmm. household, but then also kind of be like, oh, it's kind of thrilling and I can like, I can do all these things I can, that I can't, I have these freedoms sort of, Mm. um, yeah, I guess you'd call it like an appropriation of Walt's lived conditions in a way. And that sort of sets them both on their journeys of like Walt's sort of realization that he's not, he's not the same as Duncan, no matter how much Duncan will tell him that, you know, we lived, we grew up around the corner from each other. Mm. Um, We're the same, like you can't claim your struggles or, or whatever. And, but Duncan goes in, you know, he does a bit of both of that with that in that regard of, yeah. So true. But like the thing I felt as well is there's the contrast, uh, at least seemingly there's the contrast between the two, you know, the have and the have nots or someone having more of a palatial house than the other and there's sort of a or more lax sort of parental duties or involvement there. But the parents and their relationship uh, without giving too much away, but what is revealed is something that kind of in some ways forevermore sort of informs or alters the opinions of um, Duncan, Walt and Helen and the way in which they sort of perceive their parents. And I thought that was really interesting because this is something that kind of I feel that you kept coming back to in different forms throughout, which is this this theme of how uh, the way in which we perceive people, but within the context of what I'm asking here, is talking about how... Uh, finding, particularly within the case of our parents, their sort of uh, shameful secrets, be they their past or in their present, how can then forevermore define the way in which we see them and treat them as it echoes throughout our life? Is that something that you thought about, Max? Is that something that you wanted to explore? Is that something that just kind of came up because of this one particularly wild thing that happened between the two different parent couples? Um, yeah, it was something I explored a lot more in the early drafts. There's probably, oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, half the book again in length, maybe um, from the parents' perspective. And their, oh, really? Okay. Like their whole, um, you know, how they came to me, how they, you know, real, had at some point had some kind of ambition of having a multi generational, <laughs> intergenerational oh, novel wow. that I just, I couldn't pull, you know, I had really good advice from my editor that it was just like, I think I sent him this email. It's like, oh, it just feels like such first novel fodder. And I don't know. It just feels like such a, I'm making all these mistakes. I don't quite know what they are. And his advice was just like, you're trying to put everything in the one book. Like you can write mm-hmm. another one one day. So it was just like, okay, <laughs> the easiest thing to do is just peel away the parents and then focus in on these three perspectives and have more of a, yeah, I guess what's been called like a millennial book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's your question. Like I, I think it's um, having this kind of depth of character for an older generation or a younger generation is sort of not just important for a book to feel real and authentic, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the quote is exactly, but it's like that sort of, maybe it's just a cliche that like every generation is surprised to find out that their parents had sex but you know, not just had sex, but like the sixties were like a era of radical sex. And it's not like radical um, sex didn't happen in the twenties nor the mm. 19th century or any time before that. Um, everyone's always explored their bodies. Um, so I wanted that to be a real sort of thing of, you know, you have these like little 
cloaks around your head and you try to, you imagine that your experience is your own unique experience and that sometimes extends like, oh, well, my generation is discovering a polyamory (laughs) or something like that. And it's like, these things have always been around. So yeah, I like, I like the idea of, and you know, I guess it's because it is sort of like a coming of age style Mm. novel. Um, I thought it was good to have some kind of moment, a very acute moment of the kind of the curtain falling. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, the, the, I, I can certainly see like, I don't think it, I mean, it, it certainly would have detracted from the story in which you were trying to tell with including of the other story. But like, I mean, the, the novel would have been twice the size, I guess, if you included all that. Um, it would have been wild though. Maybe, maybe down the track that you can kind of like cherry pick whatever you kind of uh, wrote there and then write that into another story or something like that. But um, when you're talking about uh, finding out things about the, the previous generation or us kind of like selfishly thinking that we're the first to experience such things. Another one I thought about as well was interesting was uh, Sam's blow up with Comrade Fred, with the death of Comrade Fred, his father, and sort of the way in which the community or members of the community that he had, that he had met and obviously impacted kind of came to the RSL and you had this giant blow up sort of at the end there. And Again, this was sort of another sort of uh, spin of the what I found was the way in which people perceive uh, their parents, and then even if the general percent, the general consensus or the perception is completely at contrast or contradictory to what they themselves believe, and then that can again sort of uh, irk people into believing that their their own beliefs, even though they're seemingly against the norm even more is that something that you again also wanted to kind of explore a little bit there particularly within the sort of context of of comrade friend and sam yeah definitely um yeah i really wanted there to be because interesting like i have essentially no notion of my grandparents politics Mm. um so i thought it was it would be interesting for walt like a really important part of his life to witness um you know, his grandfather, who was like a formative member of the Builders Labor Federation and um, was a communist, um, kind of come into conflict with, conflict with his dad, who is, um, you know, I guess more or less swaying with the times, but is very class conscious and is um, kind of appropriately fitting into that sort of era of 80s neoliberal labor with um, Hawke and Keating who are, you know, speaking to the working class while privatising everything and kind of selling them out from underneath them. And so those sort of arcs of having an intergenerational arc of how the labour movement has changed in Sydney or Australia overall or internationally via the um, the blow-up between the dead grandfather and the father and, and the son. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of convenient. Mm. But, um, but also that's, like, just the best way that I could find to like plummet those ideas into Walt's head at age 13 while he's discovering anarchism. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't think it was convenient. I just thought it was interesting and I thought it was actually, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you kind of say it was convenient because I actually thought it was, it was something else in which you were um, exploring there, which was how uh, we can have these sort of uh, deeply sort of entrenched beliefs within ourself and, you know, the way in which we perceive the world. And then within the context of Walt and uh, grandfather, comrade Fred, and how he then kind of learnt all this sort of stuff about him with being a member of the Communist Party and what all he did within his lifetime, how that then sort of uh, 
reinforced his own newfound beliefs and then that kind of carried on into him sort of ultimately penning this kind of uh, manifesto, the separatist manifesto, which I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about then as well. Because that's like another generation's impact kind of post-posthumously informing this new generation purely because they've just found out all this stuff when they've sort of died and met people that have gathered there. I didn't think that was convenient. I thought that was deliberate. I thought that was some real good deep storytelling that you'd, you'd done there, Max. Oh, thanks, yeah. I've got to stop shitting on myself. <laughs> but thank you. Tell me, man. Tell me about that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess how that then spins off to Walt's Separatist Manifesto, is that what you were yeah. asking about? Yeah, I think that came... That was more just as the story kind of progressed, like I wanted Walt, uh, he has like such an agitated character and such an impatient character, but he's very, uh, like he really believes everything that he's growing up and reading. And he really believes what he, like he has such uh, feeling to his beliefs. But then of course the world changes around him and he grows older. So it's quite confusing. And that's like something similar to what I like I felt growing up. But the point at which he decides to write, you know, a manifesto for Western Sydney separatism is just, he's picked his battle for the week <laughs> in a way um, after, you know, kind of moving away from punk music, moving away from rugby league and, you know, trying to bring them all in together. Um, yeah, I wanted to ha- him to have a really impassioned idea about, like, this is my fight. This is how I'm going to. Uh, it's also trying to trying to like build him up into a people's hero before I kind of break him down at the end of the book. But um, yeah, that's yeah. But interge- in, in terms of like intergenerational stuff, um, like my grandfather on my dad's side, uh, he committed suicide when I was thirteen or something, and he was a truck driver. Um, big Canary Bulldogs supporter. And I found out like only a few years ago that he wrote poetry um, that I haven't seen. So it's just to have this like, yeah, I don't know. Like I I really wanted to tap into this kind of like this mystery that was my granddad on that side um, and kind of paint that into like, what if like all these things that I'm searching for, like I, like I'm reading about all these things. What if I just had that laid out for me via um, the wake? <laughs> and what if he was a communist? And that's like the missing link between my own thinking. And what if he, you know, what if he had all these thoughts and beliefs? And uh, what would I do? And what would be the most extreme thing for me to do? That's kind of cool. I'm glad that you could incorporate that sort of um, that sort of asking those sort of questions into what obviously became the magpie wing. But with the sort of, when we encounter, I wanted you to talk, cause I, like before I progress any further, I, I, there's no way I can possibly skip. I wanted you to talk Max a little bit about like the intersection between uh, the, what the you perceive that you would have sort of wanted to comment on there with the punk music, the punk music scene or the ever developing punk music scene and the sort of entrenched and perennial working class sort of history of rugby league and how the two align like that, because it's, it's it's something that we could probably spend an hour plus talking about. And it's probably something that we should, should, should meet up and have a cheeky few beverages over and discuss in the fullness of time. But I wanted to get some of your thoughts about it because obviously that to me strikes me as one of the main themes in which really initially drew you to this and sounding like um, has something that's been uh, inspired you throughout a large, large portion of all your writing and scenes and such. Yeah, it was a real, um, I don't know when 
because the whole the whole riding was such a chaotic experience that I'm not sure at what, what at what point I could draw this line back through and decide mm. what it was about and then start building it back in together. But that was really one of the unifying parts, and it was something. I think I had like I've had like a number of weird crises over the years, but um, at some point I'd realised I'd kind of started ignoring um rugby league or kind of pretending i don't care about every weekend's result and like ducking away from punk shows to go watch the end of the game or something and um then when i started theorizing that in a way or reading more about it there are like so many similarities between the origins of rugby league which uh like started out as a paid dispute you know like they wanted to pay their players in opposition to rugby union who didn't pay their players till you know 1995 um, so there's a bit of a taking power type event. Um, you know, sort of my love of the West Magpies who, you know, they were in the eighties or seven, late seventies were in a really unequal competition, really underfunded and found their own, um, I guess, sense of equality by resorting to on-field violence. Uh, you know, punk music, which is kind of a total rejection of the music industry and this sort of like DIY idea of, um, you know, we don't need a record label, start our own record label. Um, and will be, you know, I guess like so, uh, for lack of a better word, extreme compared to what's in the charts that will kind of like have our own interest drawn to us, which is what Rugby League did too. They changed all the rules, made a more interesting game and started selling more tickets so they could pay the players in turn. Um, and also the, the tying in of all of that um, sort of polemically in a way to uh, communism and, and taking power by force and by like, people's revolutions and um, seizing the means of production man seizing the means of production (laughs) (laughs) so yeah you know like those were the three commonalities that like i really wanted to like jam in to the book and like and run it through everything so that like you know in a way it's talking about the same thing but um you know it's a bit better characterized and there's different things happening like i didn't want to write just a rugby league book i didn't want to write just a punk book and i didn't want to write a book about communism but um, they put it like that, man, because it's so seemingly like they're also seemingly disparate things in terms of in terms of at, at face value what they are and sort of uh, the, who they seemingly they're sort of uh, self-identifying either enthusiasts or fans or, or members of like the communist party. That just when you when you explain it like that, it kind of all just brings it together in such a way. And I guess that's a large portion of what sort of goes on with the magpie wing is the three central characters are sort of. Uh, no, I don't want to say plodding along because they're always out doing stuff. It's not like they're they're not, but they're always there's there's a, there's I guess kind of something that we all sort of experiences, which is the questioning of self and the sort of always elusive understanding of self and kind of what why we are attracted to or identify as or resonate with certain things that seemingly are pillars of our life one second and then sort of uh, elude us the next. Yes, kind of thing. Mm. Anyway, I digress. I want to talk. There was one line that I really, really liked, and I think it kind of is a nice, nice dovetail to, to what you sort of t- talked about there, is anything that brings people together means something. And I thought that that was something, again, that we sort of say exemplified several times throughout. But, and you kind of touched on it a little bit before about a sense of community and solidarity, uh, particularly within something. And I think it's, it's more so kind of uh, we see it within what you've touched on with uh, the Western suburbs and the sort of support that one finds there again from so many different um, ethnicities, crazy colors that are brought together within rugby league. 
And I wanted to talk a little bit about this line of anything that brings people together means something because I think that that's so important and sort of uh, almost sums up some elements of the book. Yeah, no, I'm glad you latched onto that because I sort of forgot I wrote, wrote it. Um, and it was a, and I think it was, it's at a time where um, like Helen's really jaded. And I think they're like mm. drunk at the real exchange talking about like their various meltdowns and how they kind of like want to just give up on everything. And Walt's kind of saying it as a canned response almost to like to himself um, to remind him that that's what he believes, but, you know, kind of starting to feel this shaky feeling that maybe it's not true. Mm. And there was this moment, um, probably the months before the start of the pandemic last year, which were, um, you know, I was losing my belief in that. Cause I've always thought that like, anytime you have like a dozen people in a room and you start talking about something and you start realizing that you're agreeing, um, on something politically or socially or artistically or, or whatever that is. Um, if you agree that you hate, uh, you know, the Sydney Roosters' ability to sign all the players in the competition or whatever this stupid pub conversation you're having. Um, that's when you're starting to, like, create a, um, yeah, a moment of solidarity. And then the more you have those, the more you start building something. Um, so I do, but, yeah, I was starting to lose sight of that because I was starting to feel like, I don't know if I feel that anymore at punk shows or something. I think that's probably just me, it was just me getting older. But then the moment everything shut down and I hadn't seen anyone for four months, mm. it's just like, yeah, coming together is so important, um, not just for your insanity, but for keeping touch with what matters and what's important and, um, yeah, moving forward with any project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely felt throughout the pandemic as well. I mean, um, the sense of community is such a, something that's kind of, uh, in many respects, has been overlooked over the years or just undervalued and people don't really appreciate it until it's no longer there and you kind of have to be isolated by virtue of social distancing. Yeah. Um, one thing I also wanted to talk a little bit about is we've talked about the, t- the togetherness or the sort of solidarity in which we find. And I think that, again, I think I mentioned and you've touched on it as well, that, that Western Sydney does have that. And I wanted to talk a little bit about with the, the condescension that can be encountered by or the condescension displayed by kind of like Sydney City and West uh, towards the West. And because I feel that that's something that's actually kind of intensified, actually, since the since the writing of of the Magpie Wing has kind of become um, particularly within sort of vaccination and all that sort of stuff. It's actually gotten a lot, uh, a lot worse. I find the sort of schism that's, that's happening. And I wanted to know if that's what you thought and if it was something that kind of uh, you wanted about throughout the writing of, of the book, if it's something that you yourself had encountered or you'd seen or, and then if you yourself also think of the situation as kind of worse since, since the release or the writing of the book. Yeah, it's a really um, bizarre time for the book to be releasing mm. in that sense that um, so many of the themes that were kind of, um, yeah, I don't know, that were kind of just like, you know, parts of characterization or something like that have just been ramped up and accelerated so much. I think yeah. like, my editor at some point was just like, you know, like, like as, as all this was happening, it's like, you know, the military has been sent into Bankstown or, or to Liverpool and Fairfield. It was like, all of these places in the book are on the map now <laughs> where, you know, people nationwide know, know exactly where this is um, and can see the difference between the treatment um, of people in Western Sydney for this idea of like, yeah, I know it like, kind of like 
ill-behaved, wild, like people who need to be tamed and be given a curfew, otherwise they don't know not to socially distance or um, versus the, you know, the well-behaved eastern suburbs people who stamped out the lockdown in a few weeks and sorry, the outbreak in a few weeks and, a, um, you know, that weird disparity in messaging that kind of started coming out. And of course, the truth is more just the material outcome, material conditions that people are living in. It's like, it's easier to stamp out an outbreak when you can work from home. It's very difficult to stamp one out when your um, workplace is very often in the eastern suburbs um, serving in service jobs or um, labour jobs or whatever that is. So, yeah, in terms of like condescension, um, that's, you know, online <laughs> in the comments now, whereas growing up, like as someone from Liverpool, uh, you know, I didn't notice in my early years because I played you know, football in local junior districts. I went to, I think I would have seen the Harbour Bridge maybe five times before I was 18, maybe. I didn't really go to the city or anything. Um, but it was when I started, when I started going into Newtown because of friends were moving there. When I moved there in my early 20s, that, um, yeah, I started feeling some kind of weird chip on the shoulder thing. Um, and it wasn't until, like, I think, I can't remember what moment in particular it was, but... There was some point I knew that I was, I felt different, though I didn't look different. Mm. Um, it was a very weird internal kind of identity issue. And it was something I rejected for a long time. Like I, I heard a rec recording of my voice in an old voice memo from, I think it's 2010 when I was, I was uh, interviewing a friend of mine. Mm. Um, it was totally different. It was like sharper and it was harsher. And um, it was a, yeah, I would call it like my Liverpool accent versus my now rounded off like in a West type accent, which is kind of bizarre to think that I've like chameleoned in, chameleoned out of my own upbringing, if that makes sense. It's sort of, mm. yeah. So I guess that's what I wanted to put, those sorts of things I wanted to put in the book in some way and via Walt, who's um, super aware of it all the time and, and won't forget where he's from and by Duncan, who's happy to kind of like um, use it when it suits him. And yeah, a bit, a bit more of that chameleon type thing. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. So, I mean, like the, I think the way in which you describe it is the twang of the consonants of one, at one point, that's like how they identified the accent. And I remember at one point as well, that um, Walton Duncan kind of have a bit of a, a bit of an argument out in front of a party about why you're so quick to identify or tell people that you're from out west, uh, and then it was it words words the effect of it was something like Mount Druitt isn't Marrickville, and I thought that was really interesting. This sort of commentary of self and an identity of self because it's one self's identity as well as where they identify from, and it's like are the two sort of uh, the same? Are they mutually exclusive by the way in which you perceive yourself and how you tell others, particularly from those that you perceive and not from that area and don't know that sort of um, unique way of life or, or who this person's hailing from. I don't know. Is that something again that you kind of, cause I thought that was so interesting. This clash of two people that were, were from Liverpool and yet they, they had were at odds of how they perceive their identity and where they identified from. Yeah. And I think in that scene in particular, they're both very confused about what they even think or feel. Mm. Um, because when, you know, like Duncan, who's like out of nowhere starts telling everyone he's from Western Sydney um, then tells Walt, it's like, you know, he's kind of like uh, contradicting himself by saying like, you know, you can't claim Western Sydney either, like you're from Marrickville, not Mount Druitt. Um, 
yeah, a lot of those sorts of things I wanted to be very, uh, I guess, reflexive about and contradictory about and almost to the point of hypocrisy because mm. um, it isn't clear um, and different people's experiences are very different too. And, you know, there's other parts of the book where it's like Walt gets another talking to and it's just like, you know, like you're from Liverpool, like you haven't faced Islamophobia or, you know, you're not Aboriginal, you're not facing racism you're just like imagining this kind of chip on the shoulder thing to like stake your identity in, which is like, you know, it's a moment that a lot of uh, like, like me as a white man from Western Sydney, um, you know, I know it's a chip on the shoulder because my experience has been pretty good. Um, you know, I can go back and be like, well, you know, and I had to teach myself chemistry out of a textbook in year 12 because I went to the shitty little public school. But it's like, my life was fine. <laughs> it was good. And I'm, I'm doing fine. So it's sort of one of those, um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I really wanted to be contradictory and reflexive in those parts of the book. Um, also, just to kind of leave it to the reader to like see where they feel and uh, where they end up in that kind of dispute. Yeah, you very much did that, and there was yeah. That, that, I think that um, it was Walt at one point was trying to explain wanting to he explained the manifesto to um, with Helen and Susie and all that to all those all that group there um, when they were sinking beers in some beer garden. Because they're Glen Gary. There's always such a just a random aside there, Max. There's always such a, such a wonderful sense of place. I guess it's because like I've just been in this. I mean, I, I grew up in Dromoyne, but I've, I've like lived all around the inner west and stuff like that. And all these places that are mentioned, there's just such a wonderful like. Oh yeah, I've gotten drunk there. Oh yeah, I had a good time there. <laughs> oh yeah, I got kicked out of there. Yeah, so it's like anyway, I digress. But the one bit, Bob's trying to explain this, and it's 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 the sort of uh, this this fearing which he's trying to convey, and it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It kind of falls out of it pretty quickly, and it's kind of what you're talking about there, um, where it's just something that's just it's just it's such a strong um, atom and sense of self, but yet can't really withstand to scrutiny or can't stand up to scrutiny, particularly with what you're talking about there. I mean, like I'm not I'm not from Liverpool, but I could certainly appreciate why that um, you know. Being, being a white person from Liverpool and saying, well, hold on, I didn't have it that bad. But at the same time, you have this lived experience that it's kind of really difficult to sort of uh, fully communicate, articulate that to people from the inner West where there's, um, dare I say, a lot more potential privilege and, uh, of an upbringing. Yeah, I guess so. And I guess that's all as well. It's um, That goes back to like notions of solidarity as well and, um, and class consciousness and... Mm. Um, kind of having a common idea of what your what your um, fight is, what your belief is, regardless of where you come from. But uh, but I also find it's really, yeah, uh, like Walt's hypocrisy is inevitable because he's um, willing to like put his ideas out there. Um, whereas you know, like Duncan will never get really get called out for hypocrisy because he just agrees with whatever anyone says, depending on who they're in the room and. Helen's got like no mind for any of that. She just kind of like lives her life and is just genuinely true to herself and is genuinely, I think, you know, like the person with the most heart and the most, she's kind of like the guiding light of the book, I think in many ways. But yeah. But I think, you know, if you're going to put your stuff out, like ideas out there in the way that Walt does, it's like you have to accept that you're going to be um, a hypocrite at some point. You're going to get some things wrong and you should, you know, for him, he should probably just keep going, but, you know, obviously he has a bit of a sook about it and recedes from, from public view. <laughs> it's interesting that you've got, like, because the way in which you particularly just to explain it then, I mean, there's just, there's so many three main characters, they're all their sort of their mindsets, their outlooks, uh, their views on life. <laughs> 
Bless you, I think. Thank you. <laughs> um, they're all so different. It's, it's, it's interesting because they all overlap and they all sort of orbit within these same sort of circles and, and, and obviously spend good, good portions of each other's lives together. But then they're also different in terms of the way in which they sort of uh, process their life. Wonder, and then, because it sounds like Helen, because you've mentioned as well, like with the writing, Helen's always sort of been around and sort of one version or another. If she was then the easiest to write and the other two were more difficult or if there was any sort of uh, just kind of all kind of cohesively came together without sort of putting too much into it. Yeah, Helen Helen was the most natural and I feel like, um, yeah, she just fell onto the page when, mm. I, when I wrote. Um, the, the only thing that was difficult was to get, it was kind of getting the other two characters up to scratch mm. <laughs> um, because like, you know, the whole purpose of those two in the book is to illuminate each other's differences. They're, they're kind of like by nature, half a character each. Mm. Um, so to try and like um, fill them in, you know, so, you know, it was kind of feeling Walton was a bit more naivety and, and childishness and um, feeling Duncan was a bit more ignorance and selfishness, like more self-indulgent kind of stuff. And that kind of create made them two more fuller characters. But yeah, Hel- Helen was super easy to, wor- easy to write and I don't fully understand. Yeah, I need some psych sessions to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the, um, the broken, broken machine theory and, uh, and how that might have particular. Well, there's the John Tatler, you mentioned John Tatler as well and the broken jaws sort of uh, on field instant, but I wanted to hear <laughs> from you in terms of, of, of how that might have inspired or that we've talked a little bit about different characters and their sort of outlooks and attitudes and if that might have been one particularly resonated with one, this broken, um, broken machine theory resonated with one or informed how they sort of perceived the world. Yeah, so that one is um, Duncan at some point cottons onto the fact that someone like John Sattler is just revered character rugby league. He's like, but he's got no idea if he's actually a good player. All he knows is that he had his jaw broken in the grand final once. And that's sort of, you know, he starts, you know, on the football field. He's, he gets injured a lot. But um, he's like, well, what's the point of getting injured and playing through injury and, like, letting all your coaches know how well you did unless you kind of, like, you know, twist your shoulder and rub your head and like make it very apparent you've been like a big tough guy and playing through injury. And then it like spirals out into his, um, the way he interacts with the rest of the world as well. It's like, I think it's in the book, it's like, a, um, <clears throat> you know, he doesn't, he's a really good driver. He doesn't stall his car. His car just has a dodgy clutch or, um, and actually he's doing pretty good with that, with the car with a dodgy clutch. And he keeps that, probably keeps that car around for a really long time as a result. Um, there's that or there's the you'll only play the pinball machine with um you know the broken ramp because you can't get a replay it's like oh that's because all the good scores are up it's if you hit the multiplier on that ramp like you know and that's a real um and then you know that becomes him saying like well you know i'm from western sydney um all of a sudden so it's that kind of there's that aspect of it and then there's walt's kind of read on it which is like you just have to be resilient without telling anyone and you just keep, you just forge on and you keep going. And, you know, there's a reason that Duncan sits in a pretty happy middle-class completion to the book and Walt mm. kind of burns out. And, um, yes, I guess it's kind of like, you know, if you don't tell anyone you're not doing well, how are they ever going to know that you're unwell and can help you? And like, how can you actually experience solidarity unless you um, talk to people about, the bad things as well as the good things that are going on in your life. 
No, very well put. What about with this talking about this burning out? I felt that, and I totally get that. I mean, like you're right, like Duncan doesn't burn out. One thing that I kind of felt was interesting as well, and I thought that for at least my interpretation of the of the novel was that Walter kind of partially got burnt out. A lot of it to do with how disillusioned he became or perceived with the changing of the kind of city underground music scene and how that sort of, uh, here's this sort of uh, institution, which I guess he sort of, uh, like a lot of a lot of components of his life sort of chaotically entered into about really giving too much pause to it, but then became after years of obviously being in it, found it to be not what he thought or kind of perceived it to be this sort of uh, changing, uh, changing or deteriorating in a way in which he sort of this institution that he revered throughout a larger portion of his earlier life. And I wondered then, Max, if that was something in which you'd encountered and, and felt, and if that's then kind of passed on or translated onto the character, or if it's something that maybe was direct sort of um, conversely contrasted to what your own experience was, and that was something that you wanted to explore and just have fun with. It's not, yeah, it's not like, <clears throat> you know, none of the book is really directly something that has happened or that I've felt, but it's definitely mm. exaggerated versions thereof. So while becoming disenchanted with, um, I guess, just the music scene in general, um, you know, leads him to uh, really vocalise things of like handing out like little pamphlets of shows he does and does not approve of and stuff like that. <clears throat> but just like stuff that, you know, like that's just part of that kind of community. It's like, oh, wow, like the um, the not vice slash noisy promotional uh, piston head lager, lager punk show, um, you know, feels a bit yuck to go to and and maybe you have a discussion as a band about whether you want to play it or not. And ultimately you do it because it's got a good guarantee and it's nice to have 500 bucks in the band account or something. Um, you know, for Walt, that's something that's like abhorrent to the point of him, you know, quitting bands and uh, eventually just like watching the world evolve around him. That's, you know, it's just kind of the way the last 10 years have gone. Um, yeah. I mean, it, like it really affects him so much rather than someone who's able to kind of roll with the punches, like he feels every punch and holds onto it and then, yeah, kind of sends one back. And I guess the, like the, the only, I think that came out of like, there was this moment where I think I was, I was saying no to a lot of gigs in one of the bands I played in. Um, Cause it was like, one was just like, you know, I don't want to play that like shitty pub for 200 bucks. Like, do you know how much money they make off all our drinking? Like I'll drink $300 worth of booze. Like I should be getting like 10 times that amount. I'm sick of being like, you know, <laughs> like exploitation discourse for, and it's just a, it's, you know, and it really frustrated my bandmates at the time. Cause it's like, can't we just play a show? Like, where are you going to, where's your other show going to be put on? But so the character of Walt comes in and um, at that point, and rather than just agreeing that he's being a brat, um, yeah, does his own thing. <laughs> So a little bit, it's interesting that you mentioned about the world evolving around you because I thought that that was particularly, um, particularly with Walt. Like you, you've mentioned, you've touched on how Duncan is kind of a, leads a pretty, pretty content life for a large portion of it, particularly because like he doesn't, uh, he's, he's passive. He doesn't really question all that much. And I think that Walt, yeah, I'm not, it's not delusions of grandeur because there is definitely like he, he does earnestly believe in, in music and, and the making of music as, as well as the communists and the, the manifesto. But 
the, this, yeah, this notion of the world evolving around you, I think is something that's, that's happens to us all in some capacity where it's, we ourselves, um, are naturally drawn to whether it's, uh, particularly with writing or communities or creative outlets. And then when that outlet or that institution disappoints you or surprises you in a negative way, that's, that kind of sets in forth this chain effect of questioning why it was that you first identified or resonated with that institution or consider yourself part of it. And then I guess that kind of, uh, yeah, the ripple effect changes all your outlook on the world. For me, the person that had the biggest sort of revelation with that and kind of had one of the most interesting journeys throughout was Helen. And there's one line towards the end, which she mentions, which is about embracing being caught between worlds. And I thought that was really, really cool. And that kind of unwinds this whole sort of uh, learning to accept the evolving world and to not feel that you're identifying as any one particular part of it, but through the cracks between it. I wanted to talk a little bit about that, Max, and see if I was kind of like on the money of that or if I was completely wrong. But this sense of self and identifying with something not necessarily as an institution because it's always changing and not to be disillusioned when that naturally does, but to just embrace that you'll never kind of uh, be any one thing and just be in the middle of it, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that line too. And I like that um, that point, even though she ends up being a bit undecided mm. about whether that's... Um, accurate or not like i think there is some kind of like yeah there, there comes some some point i guess just in your like personal health <laughs> where you, you there is some point where it's like i can't you can't fight reality you can't fight everything that's around you um you can be unhappy with it and you can sow the seeds of something which is going to maybe oppose that but um yeah the idea of being caught between worlds it's like uh, you know, it's like that kind of like that whole discourse of not discourse or that whole like commentary around um, it's like, Oh, you can't be a, a communist if you own an iPhone or you, um, you know, even if it's down to like a sexual identity, it's like, you can't be a bisexual if you're in a um, monogamous heterosexual uh, relationship. And um, there are these middle points and there are these scales and uh, not everything is binary. Mm. Um and that's like across all, all forms of the human experience. So settling into, I guess, being true to yourself. And that's where like Helen is, is so interesting, I think, is that she does have a really good sense of herself, even, even though she can't find it towards the end. But it's got some balance there, but the others don't. It's very true. I mean, it is, it is kind of, yeah. I, I didn't even kind of think of it until like then when you kind of put it out, but it is sort of the... Shakespeare days of to thine own self be true kind of thing, I guess is just, uh, yeah. Don't live out yourself according to what you perceive you're supposed to when you identify as being within a certain institution or some set or something like that, I guess. I don't know. Totally. These, these, yeah. these are questions and these amusings are all above my pay grade. I can assure you. Right <laughs> yeah, so me too. I'm just, yeah. I'm just a battler. Just, just, just put it on the page and like yeah. walk away. Yeah. No, awesome, man. Let's let's talk. Let's let's wrap it up a little bit by talking about putting onto the page because because this the story of the writing of the novel is is a particularly interesting one. So you've mentioned how it kind of came to be a little bit. Tell me a little bit of give me a little bit more of an overview about that because it, it was such an interesting transformation as to how it became a novel. Because I saw something the other day. I think you posted on Insta the other day about how you kind of compiled everything, sent it to Giramondo didn't think just thought you were going to get a knockback, but tell me about 
the driving force that kind of uh, compelled you to assemble all this into what became the Magpie Wing? Um, yeah, it's sort of, I think I just had all these things, uh, all these ideas and, you know, because I'd write a lot of nonfiction um, <clears throat> essays, that sort of thing and try to have, you know, like an idea and if I'm going to have an idea, it like has to be well-researched and as well-rounded as I, I can make it. Like if that's going to be a, um, you know, a Sydney Review of Books article about uh, the Green New Deal or something, like I can't just go in like half-cocked and like half ass an argument. But, um, I mean, you can if you just throw those ideas in fiction. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, I had all these, you know, half of them were just like, sometimes really bad essays, which then became like, you know, Walt monologues <laughs> or, or they were like things that I'd like old things sitting on a hard drive that I was kind of looking through because there was a point where I was starting to rely on freelancing. It was just like, I just need to submit all this shit that I've got sitting on a hard drive and um, to every journal alive. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's good. Um, there are plenty of average writers out there. I can just throw out plenty of average writing and maybe get enough to make rent. Um, and that was when it was kind of becoming like, a, oh, this would actually be much better as a project, as a large project. And so just pulling in the short stories and um, sending it to Giramundo, expecting no reply. Uh, it was only when they, uh, Iva and Nick pulled me in the office to talk about it. I'm like, what do you want to do? And I kind of didn't really have an answer. So, <laughs> so I made up one about turning the short stories into a novel and, uh yeah yeah yeah. that's when how it all kind of like then started coming together and the first and second drafts were very different to the final draft and um it was only the final draft where it's kind of like had some form and yeah had a bit of like congruity it's crazy that it had like this natural sort of progression of things where you particularly with you mentioning there kind of trawling through the as you put it the sort of more average writing uh, for what have been could have been uh, creative nonfiction pieces to get these little kernels that then kind of uh, ultimately sort of uh, were woven in. I like that. I like that a lot of the stuff that you said that kind of where you thought it was a bit dodgy. You kind of put it into monologues and stuff like that. I think that's very, very good. It's so interesting <laughs> that like there's such a trans- there's such a difference I feel between the two of writing creative nonfiction, which is what you're talking about there, because obviously you care, which is about making sure that it's as meticulously researched and kind of well presented as possible. And then there's the creative sort of, uh, within this instance, like a novel sort of format that you can kind of, uh, you, you can you get away with more in terms of like, you can put it into a character and say, well, here's an idea that I think is interesting, but I know it's inherently flawed, but I'll let yeah. the character sort of, sort of speak it and then other colored kind of people can challenge it. And then that sort of can bear in right there. I've kind of like, uh, put in a discourse without sort of having to kind of go through the same sort of channels as creative nonfiction. Yeah, totally. And, and that was where, I mean, the novel ended up being way more researched than I thought it would be. Like, cause then I sort of found out like through that process you just described mm. was, um, oh, if, I'm, if I think this is dodgy and I want a character to respond to it, then I have to really well have that response to be really well researched. And, and what would that character actually feel? Where would that come from? Then go, you know, read the books, read the essays, read the, read the histories. And it's funny because it starts off as like, it's like seemingly an easier thing. And then you realize there's actually inherently more complicated. <laughs> oh and I do respect. Yeah. You did it, man. Look, what I want to end on 
Max, and something that I always like to talk to whoever I speak to on the program is, uh, and kind of what the, the, I guess my podcast is kind of founded on is if there was ever a period, uh, particularly of you and your kind of unique story journey that you ever kind of uh, found that you're at sort of, uh, sound too tried, but you're at a crossroads with it and you wonder, you know, whether you should just give it up or persist. And uh, if that was the case, if you didn't count something like that, what made you prevail? What kind of convince you to keep going and didn't listen to the devil's fork tongue kind of slipping in your ear there? Yeah, I think I've had a, a bunch of those moments um, with writing because um, I had a, my main career from leaving school onwards was in the sciences. I did a chemistry degree and did a chemistry PhD and, um, you know, worked at a startup based on my own invention that's turned into a relatively large company and moved overseas and postdocs and, and wrote on the side when I was on the PhD wage and, and a Canadian postdoc is so poorly paid that I, I said, I was going to quit writing, go do my postdoc and be, finally be a scientist sort of thing. But then I needed the money. I had a credit card debt back in Australia. That I had to pay off in Australian dollars sort of thing. And then, um, yeah, and I think I just had like a total meltdown about all the ethical concessions I had to make um, along the way. Um, uh, you know, dealing with investors in a startup company who don't care about the technology and they're just like, well, you know, it's green tech. Um, people pay money for green tech. So we put money in whether it works or not. <laughs> like all those sorts of experiences were just like, I just melted down and like, yeah. So I guess the crossroads then was like, well, what else do I do? And then that was writing. And then just by virtue of keeping writing, um, opportunities came up along the way and they came along very slowly. Um, we had the opportunity to write that Barely Human podcast, which was funded, punk music podcast, and then the opportunity for the book, which I wouldn't say is funded, but, um, you know, there's, there's an advance which paid off two rent cycles, a few, three rent cycles. So there's, um, yeah, yeah, the crossroads... I don't know. It's sort of hard for me to answer because I just feel this like weird compulsion to do it. Mm. Um, and I had a really uh, weird and like kind of lonely upbringing. Um, like on my way around, like into the city, into moving into the inner city and trying to find a community and finding it that I just don't want, if I can prevent someone from going through that, like barely human was just like, here's an underground music explainer that is like maybe appealing for you and you can find out all these things and, it was like if I could drop that back to me as, at 17 while I was listening to Radiohead <laughs> and not really liking it, but, you know, Rolling Stone told me to like it, like <laughs> I would have loved that. And the same with this novel. It's kind of like, oh, I really like footy and I like punk music too, but people looking down their nose at me if wanting to go watch the game, like, yeah, here's, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> Man, that's a, good way to, that's a good way to be. And I'm totally with you in terms of uh, writing what you want and I feel like it will attract the people that it's meant to and resonate with them and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah no, that's, that's honestly good to hear, Max. And it's good, it's, it's good to, it's good. To, it's so good to hear from you, man, in terms of like your journey. It's, it's a story one. You've obviously gone through some stuff, but then you've, you've prevailed and that you, you sent off the Magpowling to Jeremondo and they're a particularly cool publishing house. And then they, you know, they picked it up because they saw the promise in it, man. So I'm really, really glad that I got the chance to talk to you today. And, uh, I look forward to meeting you in the flesh, ideally at a maybe a Tigers game at Leichhardt Oval in the near future, if, if possible. Yeah, I'd love that. So, yeah, thanks so much for chatting to me. I really, really enjoyed it. It was nice. So did I, man.
Yeah, so there you have it, everyone. That was Max Easton discussing with me his debut novel, The Magpie Wing. Huge thanks again to Max for appearing on the program discussing that with me. Uh, and also huge thanks to Giramondo Publishing House for sending me a copy of Max Easton's The Magpie Wing. Uh, Giramondo are uh, seriously one of the preeminent uber cool publishing houses that Sydney has to offer. I really love all the stuff they publish. It's such a disparate, eclectic and just unique collection of Australian literary voices ranging from creative nonfiction to poetry and fiction. So I want to give a big digital round of applause to them. I'm hoping you, you give a big digital round of applause to the good folks there at Giramondo for publishing stuff like Max Easton's The Magpie Wing. Uh, to that end, I'm also going to put in the link slash bio of this particular episode, the link to Giramondo Publishing House's uh, website there so you can get a copy of The Magpie Wing and peruse and purchase all the other titles in which they've got there. So huge thanks to them as well. Huge thanks to Max. Huge thanks also resides to or belongs to you, dear reader, for uh, listening to this particular episode of the program as well as listening to all the others. If you haven't already, please, by all means, do listen to the ever-proliferating amount that are coming up there in the back catalogue. You can check them out on Spotify and SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. If you are looking at it on Spotify, please don't... Uh, don't be scared or make sure to click the follow button there so that you can check out all the new episodes that are coming out because it's going to be, I can assure you, at least one to two per week coming out from here probably to the rest of the year. Maybe stop a little bit around Christmas time so I'm not going to distract Santa. But yeah, aside from that, thank you to you for your patronage as always and keep listening. A lot more episodes coming up and I will do one of those videos in the very near future. Maybe when I kind of... uh, make my my surroundings a little bit better i don't have a bookcase in the room which i do the recordings anymore so i'm going to have to work on that to pretty it up but uh, in the interim everyone within sydney and melbourne in particular stay safe get vaxxed and uh buy from your local brick and mortar bookshops in the interim thank you very much and farewell